This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, Cherry Creek Week continues. Thanks to our sponsor, Transportation Solutions, we're spending a whole week exploring one of Denver's most misunderstood neighborhoods. And it's time to step back and look at how Cherry Creek became the fancy shopping destination we know today. What was this place like when Cherry Creek was just a creek and there was no such thing as a mall? And what changed? Today is Tuesday, April 18th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. There's a building in Cherry Creek North that looks out of place. It's all fancy Cherry Creek on the inside, according to a recent real estate listing asking for $15 million. But on the outside, it's a big, beautiful brick square with a plaque carrying the name Harmon Town Hall. And I always wondered, what was Harmon? That question led me to Terry Gentry of History Colorado. And later, you'll hear from longtime Cherry Creeker, Gary Jackson. Terry Gentry, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thank you for the invitation to join you today. So, Terry... Can you tell me about the first Black settlers to come to the Cherry Creek area? Who were they? There was a cross-section of folks in the area. So you had Black families, white families, and Latino families, and just folks from all walks of life in the area. Back in the 18, I believe 1880s, it was called Harmon, Colorado. Prior to that, we had folks coming from all over to settle in that area, the Cherry Creek runs in that area. So it was a good place to have farmland and build your life around a river, a small creek in our arid climate. So that was a conscious thing, I think, for a lot of folks is to make sure that they were in a a place, a location where they could sustain themselves. So yeah, farming was a critical part of that. We had farmers from every background there and several Black farmers in the area especially where the Denver Country Club area, we had quite a few Black farmers right there in that proximity. Then as you move closer to where what's now Colorado Boulevard, they were building homes and starting neighborhoods over there. So you'd build a home and you might have a garden out back and then somebody else would come build homes on in the same area before the streets were carved out. You had dirt roads and eventually they started carving out streets and carving out neighborhoods. So just a just a handful of folks. And I, I read they used to call it the cow town because of the families and, and the small number of folks that were in the area. And this was one of the locations that was eventually annexed by Denver and brought into the city and county of Denver. But it had quite a few families. One of my mentors, Gary Jackson's mother, 
Nancy Lee Jackson wrote this wonderful book about the history and included the names of 22 Black families that lived in that neighborhood. Some of the families moved into other parts of town and we went to school with them and generationally are still here and are still highly, wholly invested in the betterment and development of Denver. The neighborhood when I was growing up was a combination of uh, urban and rural. I can remember right next door to my grandmother's house, uh, uh, the neighbor had uh, chickens in their backyard. And I can remember my grandmother purchasing a chicken from the neighbor next door, wringing the chicken's neck and uh, seeing a chicken run around without without a head before it was put in the frying pan. You know, south of First Avenue was very rural. Glendale is how it's named now, but uh, back in the 50s, it was called Cowtown. There's a really important character in this story that I have to tell you about, Temple Buell. He moved to Denver after World War I because he thought the arid climate would help with his tuberculosis. At the time, the land where the big shopping center is now was a bunch of gravel pits and small, simple homes, according to the Denver Public Library. Buell bought the land with the hope of building high-end housing to support the country club next door. But then the creek flooded in 1933, and he let the city of Denver build a dump there instead. Yeah, it, it's changed over time, and, and especially in the 1950s and 60s, it continued to increase with higher incomes and more upscale folks. And the shopping center was put in place. I think the Temple Buell was part of the development of the, and created the shopping center. It used to be a dump out there. It was a city dump for a while. And so it became the marker for upscale residents and specialty shops. And a lot of people started putting in um, a place like the Denver Country Club became an exclusive neighborhood. And then some of the areas surrounding that and surrounding Cherry Creek became pretty exclusive. The areas north of Cherry Creek, you, you still had a range of, of different incomes and a multi-ethnic community. And a lot of the Black families lived northeast of the shopping center. But that's been evolving and changing over the years as well. The first time I noticed it was changing would have been 1955, 1956. That would have been when the Sears was built. And soon after the Sears was built, uh, the Denver Dry Goods. And so the Sears became the anchor department store. That would have been the first time that I noticed that uh, Denver was going through a transition. But, it, you know, in 1955, I would have been 10 years old. There wasn't much to feel about it uh, other than... Uh, I had uncles that were working on the landscape uh, at Sears, and they would ride me down on their bicycle. My, my uncle Art and I, uh, we'd ride down on the bicycle. I would drop him off. He would go to work landscaping. I would ride my bike back down at 4 o'clock, pick him up, and we'd ride back home. So, you know, at 10 years of age, uh, you know, you're not thinking of many uh, uh, complex things regarding uh, 
the landscape of the, of the city changing, uh, I knew that I was going to a new junior high school. I didn't understand the significance of that until much later. And I was going to a new high school and didn't understand the significance of that until much later. Because what, what these new schools meant was that um, the population was becoming richer. And so you had this new school, Hill Junior High School, on 3rd and Claremont. You had the new junior uh, uh, high school being built in 1960. And you had the best teachers from across metropolitan Denver coming to those schools because that's where the rich kids were living and going to school. And I was the beneficiary of that. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. This episode is brought to you by the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's time for the 75th annual spring plant sale at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Mark your calendars for Friday and Saturday, May 10th and 11th. Admission is free, but you must register in advance at botanicgardens.org. Registering my husband, Greg, right now for the plants I want him to pick out and plant in our yard for me. Shop from 15 different plant divisions, including annuals, houseplants, herbs and veggies, and specialties like aquatics, container garden in a bag, and plants grown right at the gardens. The garden's horticulture staff will be on site to answer any and all plant questions you may have. This sale emphasizes water smart and native plants that are perfect for our semi-arid climate. They'll be great for a beautiful landscape that doesn't require a bunch of water. For more details, registration information, and a catalog of available plants, go to botanicgardens.org. That's botanicgardens.org. So, Terry, what happened to the Black community of early Cherry Creek? Well, that's, that's a process of evolution. There's still a few of the Black families that live in the neighborhood. But with World War I, you saw changes. And then World War II and a lot of military coming in. And also, we saw a lot of changes occurring and, and people moving because of the railroads. So we had a large contingency of Black folks move into the Five Points neighborhood because it was so close to the railroads. I think Gary Jackson still lives in the neighborhood and his mom still lives there. And I know some of his aunts and uncles and cousins had moved into Clayton neighborhood and into Park Hill. So I think it was just a matter of proximity to work. But yeah, there's still still few of those families are still in the neighborhood and have been there for three, three or four generations. But you see, you see the changes have occurred. Like 
Denver Country Club evolved out of that area that was farming community. So now it's an exclusive neighborhood and, and some of the areas south of the shopping center are exclusive neighborhoods as well. So a lot of changes have occurred in the last, uh, I'd say, 70, 75 years or so. You've seen an evolution and change in the landscape and the movement of people. Well, I love my neighborhood. I've been here since uh, 1945. I, uh, I live in a home that has been rebuilt in 1994, so it has the remnants of the way it was in 1956 with the original family home. We've kept the uh, massive tree that, uh, when it was planted in 1956, was maybe six feet high. Now it's 30 feet high and almost four feet wide. And when my brother-in-law, who was, who was a uh, architect, when we rebuilt this home, he was the contractor and he built this home so that the walls curve around the tree so that we were able to maintain that, uh, that tree that was, that was planted in 1955. So, uh, when you ask me about the neighborhood, um, I love the neighborhood. I love the architectural aspects of the various homes in the neighborhood. And I uh, enjoy the restaurants and all the amenities of Cherry Creek. Well, I, I'm thinking about folks who are hearing this for the first time and saying, I had no idea the history of this neighborhood. Terry, is there anything else you would like folks to know about this rich history of the Black community that originally settled Cherry Creek? I hope people understand about the folks that live there and what their their intention in the community. They, they created a community among themselves. They celebrated their own accomplishments and worked so very hard to change their circumstances. Some of the folks that that came in the late 19th century were first generation out of slavery and were making some incredible strides to change their experiences. Gary Jackson's great-grandfather, Mr. Pitts, was an incredible builder. He could build homes and, and he could create these environments for other people to live in. And I think that's, that's a major thing is to understand that they were people with resilience and inner strength and acquiring incredible skill sets to make their community better, to build up their community, to make their families' lives better. For me, it's, um, it's an honor to know the folks that were part of the community it, it fills up my heart to know how much energy and effort they invested to improve the lives generationally and, and make it a wonderful place and space for their community to thrive. This was so wonderful, Terry. Thank you so much for taking a little time with me today. Thank you so much.
construction of the old shopping center, Cherry Creek became a draw for shoppers across the Front Range. And all that money coming in helped give it a reputation for being an upper-class neighborhood. And while high incomes and big spenders have come to represent what Cherry Creek is, who makes this fancy place work behind the scenes is often forgotten. Tomorrow, we're talking about the thousands of people who work in and around the mall. People like me and my friend David Casados, who I met working at The Gap as he was building his career in retail. Um, and... <laughs> And so you're gay. I, is that what they were yeah, saying? That pretty much. Pretty you're real much. gay. Yep. You should go into it. <laughs> yes, <that's laughs> Cherry Creek Week continues tomorrow on CityCast Denver. And if you can't wait for more, you can be like this listener and go see what's happening over there for yourself. Yes, this is Linda. I am calling regarding your Cherry Creek story. I'm a relatively newcomer to Denver, but I did arrive when the Cherry Creek parking was free. And I absolutely refuse to pay for parking. I know it's crazy, but it's a thing. So when it's nice, I ride my e-bike and I park at the bike rack in front of the Nordstrom. The tree locks just for safety. When it's not nice, I will go around in circles in the North Cherry Creek neighborhood in the area above the paid parking until I find a place and then I walk to the mall. Again, I refuse to pay for parking. Don't know why, but it's just a thing. Bye-bye. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. Sports! Both the Nuggets and the Avalanche are starting playoff runs this week. On the court, the Nuggets already have one win in the bag after defeating the Minnesota Timberwolves Sunday night by 29 points. On the ice, the Avalanche will face off against the Seattle Kraken in their first round opener tonight at Ball Arena. Go, Denver, go! And finally, the very first Quiznos has closed indefinitely. Founded in 1981 by Jimmy Lombatos, the sandwich shop on 13th and Grant grew into a toasted sub-empire in the early 2000s with more than 5,000 restaurants around the world. But other sandwich chains quickly installed their own toasting ovens, and Quiznos fell to a combination of overexpansion and stiff competition. Westwood reports that the original Quiznos in Cap Hill has closed due to non-payment of taxes, but the company hopes to find a new franchisee to take over operations and reopen soon. Oh, and one more thing. The weather is warming up and it's almost gardening season. We've got a gardening expert ready to answer all your questions. So if you've got a dirt problem or you're just looking for some inspiration, send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 720-500-5418. Again, our gardening hotline is open at 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell the ghost of Temple Buell about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See ya. So Peyton and her party of one can go eat at Quiznos by themselves. <laughs> oh, I question that girl's taste. Okay. <laughs>